when you're just starting out and you're just one person and I've been there several times in several businesses it, again it's about making sure you are connecting with the right people that those people really understand and appreciate your artwork so obviously it's the audience making sure that the, the message around your artwork is clear or around your product is clear then once you know that what you're doing is resonating then yes, absolutely. Then put a little bit of budget behind it and it can help massively. Hi, Philip here. Welcome back to Careers 2.0. With social media, artists could be the group that benefited the most from the change that happened in an opportunity to build your career 2.0. Today, I'm talking with Amanda Heath, a person who is a perfect example of combining creativity with business acumen. We're talking business of art and art of business, how to start and how to scale with Amanda. Enjoy. I want to start with a little quote of yours uh, in one of the videos that you made that I really, really agree with, which is that a lot of people trying to sell art, but not only art, are running around like headless chickens. Yes. And that's exactly what, what I see happening all uh, all the time to most of the people who, who try to do something like that, who try to make a living uh, from, from their knowledge and art online. And I wonder, what makes you different? Uh, what, what do you have that most people don't? Um, and so that makes them unable to make a living or a life, as you would say, selling their art really good point I think it's really important to kind of design the life we want and know that it's achievable so in terms of possibly what makes me different is I have a very solid business background um you know I've built three multiple six-figure businesses from scratch so a lot of experience there but I'm really really passionate about art and about artists and about dispelling the entire kind of starving artist myth um and the fact that you know you know, in days gone by, artists had to rely on galleries to sell. Um, they had to wait to be discovered to sell. But things have changed massively, you know, in the age of the internet. And now we can access a, a global audience. So instead of just putting our art out there and hoping that it sells and following all the latest trends and, you know, gimmicks and things, it, which re really isn't a strategy, we can formulate a very precise action plan that gets your work out there in front of thousands of the right buyers and has them purchasing. So we can have more independence as artists, more creative freedom, because obviously sometimes working with galleries oh, can be a little restricted and, uh, and ultimately more profit because that's what we want. It's the same as any other job. There is no reason artists cannot sell as much or more product as anybody else. And I use the word product as in art. Uh, I know people sometimes mm -hmm. don't like that, but we are creating a product. So um, yeah, marketed in the right way. There are no limits to an art business. You mentioned your background in business building. And I see this all the time that people who are successful at any sort of online sales and online business have this sort of business acumen that they, that they fall back regardless of whether they sell art or information or physical products if they have business approach to whatever they are doing rather than just creative and just artistic approach that it usually works better can you maybe narrow down the skills or the knowledge 
that is absolutely necessary uh, and crucial uh, that you have learned previously that you took with you to, to the artist part of your business that without which that would not be possible? Oh, that's a really good question. So there are a lot of similarities between um, the three businesses I've had, but there are also some differences with the art business. Um, in terms of the transferable skills, it is having a good commercial eye to know what is going to work, being able to understand um, market demand, being able to understand what your customers are looking for, being able to understand what your art or whatever you create will bring in terms of value to your customers and then being able to clearly articulate that. Because I think a lot of artists, um, we get so engrossed in the creative process and what we're, we're making that we kind of almost separate ourselves from the um, from the buyers and think that they should just get it. But I think, especially in the early days, it's up to us to articulate just what our art is about, what it's inspired by, how it can move people. And then it helps them form that emotional connection with the work. So yeah, I think the difference between an art business is with a traditional business, um, you start with the demand. So what are customers looking for? And then you create something to fulfill that. With artists, it's very, very different. And it has to be, in, in my opinion. And that is you start with the work that just bubbles up inside you. It's, it just has to come out. It's like an itch you have to scratch. And you're super passionate about it. And therefore, when you're passionate and excited and driven, not only does it keep you going, but your audience and the buyers can feel that and the right people connect with it as well. Otherwise, it's just a recipe for burnout. If we try, try to create art that's literally just for sale, then you know we get tired and we may as well just take any other job. This is fascinating what you mentioned, which is basically building value of something from the ground up. And, and I think for art and knowledge, I think those are the two things that have the in, incredibly arbitrary value. So my question is, how do you increase or build value of something like that um, to make it into a very valuable product? Yeah. So it's obviously value can be taken in different ways. It can be monetary value or it can be value yeah. in terms of the impact it has on somebody. Um, there are two sides to my business. I'm, re I'm really fortunate and I've, I've built it that way because I absolutely love business and I love the challenge it brings and I love teaching artists about it and helping them demystify um, what it's about. But I also love the creative process. So in terms of, you know, increasing the value in, the, in a knowledge-based business, it's really about being able to help somebody get from A to B. So where are they currently? Where do they want to be? And how are you going to help them in the fastest, simplest, easiest, most enjoyable way possible so that they see you as the kind of go-to, no-brainer expert? And in terms of creative value, I honestly think that's a process of just continual improvement, putting your heart and soul into whatever you create, which I don't think most artists can help, it's just inherent, and continuing to refine it, to tweak it, to improve it. Listen to feedback, but also just keep showing up daily, doing the practice. In the knowledge part of your business, do you see creativity as, some, as something important? 
I mean, you write a lot of copy, you create um, Instagram videos. There, there, are, there is creativity in, inherently there. But I wonder how important the creative part is in the sales part of the knowledge business rather than just doing what works and repeating the same things over and over. Brilliant question. Because a lot of artists think, oh, I'm not a business person. You know, I don't do strategy or things like that. I'm creative. And they feel like it's a completely different mindset. But I disagree. I actually think creatives are some of the best people to be in business because they think laterally and they think outside the box. So instead of just following a strategy, they bring two extra skill sets to it, and that's intuition, very intuitive, very emotional, very sensitive. So what feels good? Does it feel aligned? But also that ability to think, okay, well, this is the traditional way of doing something. How perhaps might I do it differently? And there is no better person in terms of alignment for that than a creative, in my opinion. Absolutely. But using another quote of yours, you said, and it's not... Uh, some spe- quote that I specifically attributed to you, I think a lot of experts like yourself repeated because that's true, that selling, a lot of it is a numbers game, right? You have to put your things in front of as many people as possible. So how do you how do you even start getting there? How do you put your creation in front of enough people to get results? Yeah, I, again, fantastic question. And it is a numbers game, but it's not a boring numbers game. It is a really exciting numbers game. Because when you realize that, let's say, and I'm going to use kind of arbitrary figures, when you get your work in front of 100 people, um, you know, say 20 to 30% of them are going to come onto your email list, and then say 2% of them are going to buy, then... And, and that happens consistently, you can go, well, hang on a minute, what if I go to a thousand people? And that 2% changes from two people, you know, and it magnifies massively. So, and then you can scale it exponentially. So numbers, once you get the starting point sorted, and for me, it's always about testing things organically. So I think, okay, I have, a, let's, let's call it a, a pipeline or a funnel. I want to get my product in front of somebody. And so I show it to an audience. A certain percentage of that audience are going to either sign up to my email list or the trial or, you know, a, a print, whatever it is that I'm kind of putting out there. And then if I build relationships with them on my email list to give them value, to give them expertise, to help them give them information that's really useful, then a certain percentage of those people are going to buy and work with me. And so once you've refined that organically, i.e. not putting money behind it, this is the mistake some people make too quickly, you can test your speaking to the right audience. You can test that the message is appropriate and it's, it's really connecting with them. And you can test the product has a good fit as well. And once you've got those three elements, your audience, your message, and your strong product, and it works, then you can turn up the volume and really amplify the numbers of people you're going to. But a, a mistake I see quite often is people either try to reach out in terms of numbers too quickly and they haven't got their message refined or their product is is not right for the people they're speaking to. And so they're throwing money, you know, good money after bad. And there are holes mm-hmm. in the bucket. You know, you have to plug all the holes first and then um, put the money into scale. 
would you use the same tactics at the very beginning versus what you would do a little bit down the line? So if you have audience of 100 followers or 100 people, would you use the same um, funnels, the same applications to get people on the email list? Or maybe you would do some more things that don't scale, like, for example, interact with them, uh, schedule calls with them or tap into chats. Yeah, I think your business definitely has to change as you grow because the things that you do in the beginning, like you said, intimacy, are fantastic. And and people often say to me, oh, Amanda, I only have 50 followers. And I think that's phenomenal. That's 50 people who've decided to follow you that want to hear from you that you can get really intimate with and talk to on a very kind of personal level, find out what they love, what they dislike, you know, why they connected with you. When your business scales and suddenly you've got 30, 50, 100,000 followers, you can't do that anymore. So you have to have automated systems that um, can run it for you. Otherwise, you know, you just burn out. There aren't enough hours in a day. But yeah, so in the early days, it's very much about providing value and being as close as possible to, you know, the people you want to work with. Do you feel like you have nailed your system and your funnel or or it's still constantly evolving uh constantly evolving thing do you know i wish i'd nailed it it's definitely working and it's very (laughs) successful and it's scale it's the results are phenomenal so i'm you know very quickly growing the business putting a team in place i think i have eight team members now working with me so and that's just in two years so that has grown massively but The type of person I am is that there are always things that can be better, things that can be refined, things that, you know, I I spot gaps in the provision for the students. And I think, oh, if only I could just plug that little gap and make it better for them or make it easier for them. And then again, the same with my own art sales. There are markets that I want to move into. There are things I want to try. And so I could actually just sit back today and go, do you know what? I'm, I'm at where I wanted to be. So let's just relax and chill out, take the pressure off. But I think for, for me, there's always a new challenge and a new opportunity. Yeah. And yet you jump on the podcast with me, which I'm very grateful for. You could you could chill right now. And yet oh, you're a pleasure. doing the work of talking with me. <laughs> so thank oh, I love you. talking to people like this. It's just, it's really stimulating. But um, so fantastic growth of the last two years. Have you nailed your funnel when you when you figured it out? Did you just go and put it in place and started doing the same thing uh, that helped you grow to this point? Or there were some failures at the beginning? I wonder how long the process was to nail it and to make this thing is what it is right now. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. There have been. And I'm so glad you brought this up. Um, this is one of the reasons I wanted to be on your podcast as well, because the value you provide and the questions are, are just are really on point and insightful. Um, but yeah, there are a million mistakes and I think people sometimes can be too afraid of making mistakes thinking it's a failure or they weren't cut out for it. If I had a pound for every mistake I'd made, I would literally be a millionaire right now. But, um, yeah, I think it's the, it's the same basic funnel that I started with and I've just refined it and improved it and tested it and tweaked it, but also, what happens in business, as you know, is that things work for a little while and then they stop working because everybody then starts to do something similar. So you have to innovate. Again, that's where creativity comes in. Okay, what can I do that's different to what everybody else is doing at the minute? How, what's going to make me stand out? 
So it would be lovely to think we built a funnel or we built a process for selling art. I've just um, worked on another one on the art side of my business with phenomenal results, but that I know that will only work for a certain length of time. And then I'll have to change it, swap it out for something else. And for me personally, I love that because I love the kind of cycle of having a problem and then thinking, oh gosh, you know, right, okay, how do I get around this? How do I resolve it? How do I, you know, beat it effectively? Um, But I know a lot of people, it puts them off that. So yeah, many, many failures. Okay, so can we get a little bit more in-depth into your funnel right now can you tell us how does it look like uh, what is the main concept behind it where 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 do you get all your audience from and where do you lead them and what's the end end product that you're trying to to sell yeah so in your knowledge business in the knowledge side of the business okay so um you know without giving away trade secrets <laughs> basically as i was describing to you i start off with something that i know my audience need For example, the artists that I work with are fantastic at creating art, but a lot of them have absolutely no idea how to market it and how to make it a consistent income. So if I can break that down and provide value for them, then um, that is a viable product. So I would start off, or I do start off with kind of a taster of my knowledge. And one of those is um, a little lead magnet that is 12 ways that you can make money from your art. So just to give some ideas, people download that, they come onto my mailing list and I then hopefully <laughs> provide lots more value to them. Now, depending on what stage of their journey they're at, I have four different products that can help them. There's an ebook, which is right at the beginning, people wanting an overview or self-starters that don't need support. There's an Instagram workshop to, you know, how to sell your ads on Instagram For those people that perhaps aren't making sales yet, want to dip the toe into it, but don't want the commitment of building a website and funnels and all those things. Then the next product is a, a six-month mentorship and online course, which is a signature program. And that helps artists who are very serious and passionate about turning it into a full-time income, completely everything step-by-step. And I'm just literally about to, in the next week or two, introduce a program for artists to help them scale. So artists that are working with galleries or third-party sites or their sales are a little bit inconsistent and they want more independence and more profit, I teach them how to go from ad hoc sales here and there to consistent kind of 5K plus months. Yeah, so it's kind of about, about meeting people on the journey. So in that nurture sequence with the emails, just letting people know how I can help them if they want my help and also providing free value to them if they're not in a position to take that help yet or they just don't want to. So, um, and then obviously a certain percentage of the people coming through that pipeline will buy. So uh, yeah, I have different, different income streams in that business. Um, some of them are very passive which is important as well is one of the methods I teach. And some of them are much more in-depth and active. Uh, I have so many follow-up questions. I will definitely forget about some. So let's start with the most important one, which is email list. You talk about it a lot and a lot of successful entrepreneurs do, do as well. I wonder how many, I mean, percentage-wise, how much sales happen through the email and thanks to the lead magnet that, that drives people to subscribe versus direct sales, let's say, from your link to your list of products. 
Do you know, it's a really great question. I think it is a, it's very much an ecosystem. Um, and, you know, as you get further down that ecosystem, having something called omnipresence is really important. So people kind of seeing you everywhere, uh, whether that may be on a podcast or on Instagram or on YouTube or uh, email. But at first, obviously, you can't do that. So I definitely, definitely know the value in an email list. Even right in the early days, if you only have three people on your email list, treat those three people like gold. You know, tell them what they, uh, you know, are looking for in terms of information, give them help, give them advice, uh, guide them, that kind of thing. Um, But it's interesting because sometimes I have a little dip in my consistency with emailing and posting because, you know, other things are going on in the background. And I think, oh, sales have kind of just taken a little dip. And I think it's because I'm not in front of people. I'm not emailing them. I'm not posting on Instagram or wherever it may be. Um, and therefore, it's just taking a little dip. And as soon as I get back in touch and do a post or reach out by email, then the sales automatically come back in again. There's a period, I think, in the beginning with every business where you feel like you're talking to no one. You know, you're posting on socials, you're sending your emails, nobody's responding, you're getting maybe one like from your grandma or your mum. <laughs> and it's like, oh, what am I doing? Nobody wants to hear from me. But the important thing is to push through that and just keep doing it anyway. But uh, yeah, in answer to your question, for me now, a lot, I have systems in place that help me reach people on socials. So I don't have to spend 24-7 on there anymore. A lot of it's automated. Um, which frees up a lot of time. And that's what I teach other people to do as well. But it is, in the early days, it's very much about being in front of people, being intimate and being there. But I think as you progress, then yeah, a lot of sales can come from either your email list or your socials. I think most people, uh, the sales come from my emails or having conversations with me. But the social media, et cetera, is kind of the first point of contact. It's the colder end of the pipeline. And then once they have a conversation with me or they receive emails or anything, they become what we call in, in digital marketing warmer, i.e. They, they know you a bit more. They trust that you are authentic, that you know what you're talking about. And yeah, they're a bit more connected, involved. I would like to know whether you think of your multiple products as sort of steps on a ladder. Uh, so from free product to a $27 product to a $97 product to multi-thousand dollar product, or you give people choice. Once they are, um, once you're in front of them or they are on your email list, you tell them, here's option A, here's option B, here's option C. Choose whichever one fits you best. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, that val- I call it a value ladder. So yes, the aim initially is to bring people in with free information because there are so there's such a kind of distrusting um and rightly so feeling online because there are some people out there that are just inauthentic and you know the strategies you know are are less than desirable so people are naturally suspicious and they've been scammed and um and that really kind of makes my blood boil so by offering free value first of all People kind of go, oh, okay, well, this person, number one, knows what they're talking about. And number two, they're not just in it for the money. They do want to help. 
then having the various steps, you know, it may be that somebody's very advanced and actually they would fit into my premium program, but they don't have the budget, you know, or they don't have the time or whatever it may be. So there is a natural progression, but if somebody wants to go from step one to step four, I'm happy with that. Um, but I do have certain criteria for, for certainly the latter programs uh, and certainly the, the new or least scaling program. You know, the artists for that have to be selling already. They have to have a website and social media presence and or being represented by galleries and, and selling on third party sites. If somebody's at the beginning of the journey, they haven't sold anything yet, then that program is a no for them. That's application only. So it's just, it would be a complete waste of their time and it will be way too stressful for me to try and teach them at that level for them. How do you qualify people, whether they are at this stage? Yeah. So with that particular program, I have an application form and we have a call. So the... Um, the prospective students fill out the application form and book a call. I look at the application form and if I can see straight away that that person isn't going to, I'm not going to be able to provide value to them. I'll just get in touch and say, hey, thank you so much for applying. At the moment, you're not at the right stage. I think you'll benefit more from this product or this product. Um, you know, and try and just help and guide them towards the right thing because it would be like, you know, sending somebody for their first job into the MI5 and having to deal with that level of, of of learning and growth, it just, it would be unfair. So not that the the, the, the high level program is like the MI5, but that was uh, the first thing that sprang to mind. <laughs> okay. I, I will definitely remember that your program is basically you know, getting into MI5. That's a fantastic snippet that, that i will definitely use <laughs> no, that sounds dreadful doesn't it <laughs> yeah <laughs> no that sounds mysterious and exciting absolutely <laughs> um okay I, I i need to go back to something that you said uh that i think is really really important you said now i have systems in place that my social media work is largely automated please tell us about those systems and, and how you maybe got from doing everything probably yourself and spending a lot of time to automating this process. Because I actually, I have to say, I, I, I noticed your social media that is, it looks like a cookie cutter system. You have uh, B-rolls, you have a little bit of your own um, talking head type of videos, but it does seem like like you're the type of person that batches content, spends one day creating, and then you have it for, for a month. Am I right or am I wrong? Oh, do you know what? I wish. <laughs> um, so I, do, I go through various things and I keep trying to find different systems. And the truth is I'm not massively keen on social media as a whole, um, especially as a creative. I, I think it has amazing benefits because it allows us to reach enormous audiences at very little, if not. Um, no cost. Whereas in the olden days, I remember myself sound ancient now. You know, we had to put an advert in a new in a magazine. It was seven hundred and fifty pounds for a quarter of a page, and you just hoped that your buyer saw it, which is very expensive, very inefficient. Whereas social media now is phenomenally efficient and easy to use. So that side of it is brilliant, but I just don't like the side of it where we have to dance to the algorithm and you know, fit in with the latest trends and, and what makes you visible because I'm all about con control in my business and, and helping the artists get control of their business. And sometimes it feels like as creatives, we're trying to do everything to please Instagram or Facebook or YouTube. 
And actually, it's like, hang on a minute, who's in charge of my business? So I try to come up with systems that, um, yes, you're right, I do batch video content sometimes and I repurpose. So one example of that is to create a video. And then from that video, and by the way, don't be put off with this if you're just starting, this evolved. From that video, I will then get the transcript from it and turn it into a blog post. I'll get little snippets from the video and maybe turn it into a short um, for you know YouTube or TikTok or Instagram. And then I'll post a link to the video and to the blog to my newsletter list. So it gets repurposed rather than just being one video. It then becomes a video, a blog, you know, shorts on YouTube, Instagram, etc., And that helps be consistent. But there are methods that I teach the students inside of the program that allow them to widen the, the pool of audience, you know, using um, Facebook and Instagram promotions. And there's two benefits to that. You, you reach a wider audience once you know that your messaging is right. Um, you, and also you are not having to spend all of your time on socials because it's having bigger impact for less, um, initial input. And also you're building a pool, which is really important of prospective customers, because anybody who engages with your account on Instagram or Facebook or wherever it may be is classed as an engager. So then when you have something to sell, you can then go to Facebook or Instagram and say, hey, would you mind showing this product to anybody that's engaged with my account in the last 365 days? And you have what's called obviously a warm audience rather than a cold. So it's those kind of efficiencies for just a couple of pounds that can exponentially kind of grow and um, scale your results. So would you say that for someone who is just starting and uh or maybe not even just starting, maybe they are just by themselves. So their omnipresence is kind of an impossibility uh, at, at, that, at that moment. Would you say that that paid advertising, even not without massive investment, is actually the best type of investment to, to start and put yourself uh, out there? Yeah, not, not at first. No, for me personally, and I know people differ with this. So I think when you're just starting out and you're just one person, and I've been there several times in several businesses, it, again, it's about making sure you are connecting with the right people, that those people really understand and appreciate your artwork. So obviously it's the audience. Making sure that the, the message around your artwork is clear or around your product is clear. Um, and then once you know that what you're doing is resonating, then yes, absolutely. Then put a little bit of budget behind it and it can help massively. But if you just put a post out there and put budget behind it, it may not be the right post. It may not be the right message. It might not be the right product that people are interested in. And so you're putting money, in my opinion, behind things too quickly. So I always recommend testing what works first, refining it on your own, and then putting a little bit of budget behind it and helping. Because there's two ways of doing things. There's free, which takes time, and there's paid, which is less time and has bigger growth possibilities. But to jump into the latter too quickly can see a lot of wasted money if you do it incorrectly. All right, then I have a follow-up. Um, how do we make sure that the messaging is right? 
uh, taking into account that, let's say that we're doing the content and we're trying to see what works, but the, inf- the feedback that we are getting may sometimes be misleading. Like we are at the stage that we are dancing to the algorithm song a little bit. How to make sure that we're actually dancing to the right audience, to the people that have money and are willing to buy rather than just algorithms that show us and we have maybe a lot of likes and a lot of views but nothing will come out of it. Yeah, that is a a brilliant, brilliant question. So I think a lot of what I see artists do mistakenly um, in the early days, and I definitely did the same, is making it all about them and the process. And whilst there has to be a lot of that in there, if you are selling artwork and what I see a lot of artists do is they describe the features of the piece. So they'll say what size it is, what medium it is, and then say, DM me if interested. There is zero emotional connection there and there's zero benefit. So it's leading with the features instead of the benefit, which we've heard a a lot um, in business in general as well. So if I talk about a piece and I say it's 18 by 24, it's mixed media on canvas, DM me if interested. Would you want to buy that piece? Not really. No, nope. it doesn't really <laughs> compel you. Whereas if you talk to an audience of ocean lovers and you talk about the inspiration behind the piece and the the quiet and the freedom and the exhilaration you feel when you're in the ocean and how all the worries of the world disappear as you're floating on your back, and you know all of those kind of things you're you're actually helping pop people into a frame of mind where they connect emotionally with the piece it you know it evokes a memory or a feeling for them and so when they connect with that and it's important to them you know then the price of the painting or the piece is almost arbitrary then because if you can make somebody feel powerfully about something then it's like, do you know what? It doesn't matter how much it is. I, I need to have it. I mean, obviously that's an exaggeration. Of course it matters, but that is what I think most people miss. And sometimes artists can undervalue themselves and think if I price this piece lower, then I'm going to get more sales. And that, when you use the example of, of reaching the people that have the money and will buy, is a prime example. You know, they want to sell their artwork for two, 3,000, but they're discounting it to you know, 150, 200 thinking it will sell more, but actually that then is a disparity between what they want to do and who they want to reach and what they're actually doing at the minute. Does that make sense? It does. So do I understand correctly that you would say from the very beginning, when you're putting your artwork and your knowledge out there, you should aim for the sale straight away. You should ask people to DM you, uh, to, to make the connection, to talk with people. And that should be the only metric that matters. That is the good feedback that we can learn from rather than just views and uh, followers and those vanity metrics. Yeah, so I think really important point that you just raised there with another kind of pet hate of social media. People get preoccupied, myself included, with followers, with likes, and and it's designed that way, isn't it? It's designed to make us go, you know, I just got 300 likes on a post instead of 100. And it's kind of that self, uh, that that kind of gratification. Um, But there are way more meaningful things that result in a lot more sales. And that is the depth of connection you have with a smaller number of followers 
rather than having a higher level of followers with tons of likes, but they're quite superficial and, and not really your ideal customers. Uh, I've seen many artists have 300 followers and make a full-time income because they really understand their customers. They really understand the benefit in what they create and they can articulate it. And I've seen other artists out there with, uh, you know, that approached me with 50,000 followers saying, Amanda, can you help me? I've got all these followers. I've got all these interaction, but I don't have any sales. And so, yeah, it's definitely for me what, and it's, it's so much more rewarding having a deep and meaningful and impactful conversation with three people that it is having, hey, you know, emoji type conversations with 150 people. Um, I think especially... Yes, emoji type conversations. Yeah. Yeah, especially as artists because we're... I like this comparison. We're, we're sensitive, aren't we? Uh, which can be good and bad. Um, and we're real empaths a lot of the time. So the, the depth of those connections is way more important than, than volume. Okay, but let's then switch our attention a little bit to volume. So once you're established and you get the right signals, then you can scale, then you can grow. And I know yourself, you do it very successfully with ads. Um, I want to maybe go through a little bit of a ads uh, or, or ad buying journey. What stage do you think is the right stage to start? And how much do you think is the right amount to invest at the very beginning um, for, for scaling your content? versus where can it grow? Can it grow infinitely? <laughs> How high can it go to actually bring results? So my my sales come in, they used to come in primarily from ads. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to backtrack slightly. In the very beginning, it was organic. And then I started to do ads and it grew exponentially with, with the ads. And then now, because of the omnipresence um, and having you know the luxury of a team, a lot of my sales now come in organically through word of mouth and it's just underpinned with the ads, which is a great position to be in. But going back to your question about ads or when it's the right time and what investment, it's it really is a little bit different for everybody. So I'm going to give a general, um, a general answer here. There are some artists I see and I think, gosh, if you do ads tomorrow, you will fly. And there are other artists I think, okay, we need to step tentatively into ads because uh, your audience isn't as clear. So you can, I, I always begin with testing audiences, first of all. It's much cheaper to test audiences and to do that approach and then test your kind of copy and your offer. Because if you test the copy and offer, it's a lot more expensive. And if you're reaching out to the wrong audience, it's very expensive. So to test audiences, you can do it for as little as three pounds a day. And you can have that running for five, 10 days and get quite a bit of information from that. If you wanted to do a quick test on audience, um, then, you know, 10 pounds a day for five days would certainly give you a lot of information. And then you choose the best performing audiences and run your copy test, you know, your offer, whatever it is that you're putting out there to those audiences. And it's then a constant kind of game of refining. Why did that work? Why didn't that work? Okay, let's switch this one off. Let's switch that one on. Let's try this one to a different audience. How does it, you know, impact? Um, so in terms of time, as I mentioned earlier, I definitely wouldn't start ads until you have a strong 
product, what you're creating is good, it's, it's well executed and it's you, you, you demonstrate a lot of care and passion in it. And also you have a very clear message because it's incredible the number of artists and business owners out there who and who can't really, you know, express what is unique and valuable about what they offer. And that is critical. You have to be able to express that first. And then when you've tested it organically and it works, then definitely time for ads. Fascinating things you're, you're, you're telling us. And I wonder about the audience testing specifically. Um, how do you do it? And how do you, what kind of information do you go after when you're testing audiences? Is it click through the uh, click throughs to your, to your website? Is it purchases directly? What is the information that you're looking for to know whether the audience is right? So you can test a, a variety of audiences. So let's use the example of somebody who creates seascapes again, just because it's at the forefront of my mind. You can, the, the limits to what you can do when you start running ads are endless. So you can create an audience based on people that have visited your website. You can create an audience based on your email list. You can create an audience of people who look like them, i.e. they act like them, because as as we know, good or bad, Facebook has a lot of data on, on every single one of us. So you can go out with a list of, say, a thousand and say, Facebook, could you find me another, you know, however many people that have the same attributes and hobbies and skills and whatever as this group? And you can say, yeah, how many are there? And it will say, well, do you want half a million? Do you want three million? Do you want 10 million? And it's incredibly accurate. So you can do it like that, those lookalike audiences, or you can say anybody that's engaged with my Instagram or Facebook in the last 30 days or six months. Uh, or you can do an interest-based audience and say, show my thing to anybody that loves the ocean or you know is a member of this ocean group or whatever. Um, getting That's where you we need to do a lot of work on who our buyer is. Now, it's really important to clarify that we are not creating artwork for a buyer. That is really important. What we're doing is we're creating the artwork. We're digging very deep into our why and what it's about and what it's inspired by, what we're passionate about. And then we're connecting that with the person on the viewing side, what they're receiving, what they're passionate, et cetera. And then we're doing a kind of analysis into that type of person to say, where do they hang out? What do they love? And Facebook or Instagram, please, can you go and find me half a million people with those attributes? Where else can you ask people, ask anything or anyone to give me half a million people, please, with this specific attribute? This is once in a lifetime. As much as we have a love-hate relationship with Facebook as a business owner, um, if we're really providing value to people and they're interested in what we have, then it is... It's, it's just phenomenal. Like I said, going back to the days where you had to put a quarter advert in a magazine and spend 10 times the amount, so you know, £750, and that was back in 2005. If I spent the equivalent of that on Facebook ads today, that would potentially bring me in £30,000 worth of sales easily. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a quite an amazing return on investment. Let's hope we can all get there one day. And uh, now let's uh, 
finish it up with my favorite segment of every show, which is the quick fire round. If you don't mind, a few quick questions and quick answers from you. Oh, that wasn't quick fire. <laughs> that that was we, we were going really slow. You've asked, you've asked some amazing questions. Have a think, but try to give me a short answer, please. I would appreciate it. All right. I think I know the answer to the first one, but are you a team player or lone wolf? Both. I am a lone wolf initially, but I love being inspired by other people around me. Take risks or carefully calculate? Ooh, carefully calculated risks. <laughs> <laughs> Such a cop-out answer. Um, mobile or desktop? Hmm. Desktop. Who inspires you most? Oh, wow. Not one person specifically, but people with courage. People that step into something that frightens them and does it anyway. What profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt? Do you know, I'm kind of doing my dream profession now. If anything else, it would probably be design, house and interior design. What is an underappreciated business tool that you couldn't live without? I think with the age of tech, a good old paper diary for me. <laughs> what is your productivity life hack? Life hack. Wow. I think um, time blocking, that has just been amazing. The amount you can get done with time blocking is like superhuman. And finally, what does success mean to you? Success for me means that I am content, I'm fulfilled, I'm inspired, I'm challenged, all of the above. And I am financially able to have freedom to travel, to spend time with my family and to grow as a person and with my business. Are you successful then right now? Do you feel like it? Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, I have uh, I wonder one thing that I want to come back to. You mentioned throughout the conversation quite a lot to your team that grew in the last couple of years. And I would like to ask you, how do they help? What kind of tasks did you outsource and why those tasks and not another, other ones? Yeah, fantastic. So... Uh, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the first, I think the first hire was somebody to help me with social media for obvious reasons. It was not my zone of genius, something I don't enjoy per se. So I was like, this is what I'm here to say. This is what I want it to look and feel like. Please, can you, I'm going to create the content. Please, can you create the graphics and the wording and the hashtag research, all of that, I think, and then actually put it out there and post it because it was just taking too long. So Social media manager, um, gosh, who was next? Facebook ads. So I learned how to do it myself, um, had a, a reasonable amount of success with it. And that's important for me to understand things first. And then I handed that over to somebody else. Cause again, it's uh, time consuming and um, yeah, not my zone of genius ultimately. So social media, Facebook ads, and then go. Oh. I probably took on a kind of admin assistant, a VA type person to help me kind of manage the day-to-day -day things again that were repetitive and, and taking time. Um, and then as the business grew, I took on obviously um, a bookkeeper to do all my financials, an accountancy firm that helped me with investments and things like that and tax efficiencies. And then two student ambassadors inside the program to help me serve the students as best as possible. So they're always getting help and they don't have to wait for very long. And then um, somebody who, to help me with Pinterest pinning. I've just taken on 
Yeah, it's great. She does the blogs and the pins, etc. She's phenomenal. Uh, then I've just taken on a YouTube expert to help with that. And I've finally, my, well, the last hire is now a client success and operations manager. So she is my kind of right-hand person now. Amazing. I think, I think we could uh, dissect your omnipresence endlessly. And I would like to go through Pinterest and blogs and YouTube and everything. But uh, I think our blog in your time block schedule is running out. <laughs> so I'm going to let you go. And I'm going to thank you so much for the time you spent with me and, and the value that you that you gave us. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And your questions were brilliant. They were, they were deep. They were really kind of challenging. But uh, yeah, it's been a great conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you for saying that means a lot. Thanks a lot and have a great day. Bye. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. And remember, less emoji conversations. This was definitely not one of them. Wouldn't you say? See you in the next one.